Oh, hi. It's uh, Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Excellent. Thank you. So, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, uh, and I appreciate you taking the time to have a chat. I wanted to uh, just ask you a little bit about your history, because you really do have some quite remarkable videos where you take a very, if I understand it rightly, and I've watched quite a few, a, a libertarian and Socratic approach to questioning the ethics of those near the seat of power in politics and uh, in the media. And I find them quite fascinating to watch, although it is a little bit like watching some expert pin a butterfly to a, <laughs> to a mat. But um, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit or tell me a little bit about uh, how you got into this, what your background is and, uh, and what your goal is in these. Well, uh, before I do that, I, I want to congratulate you on having a, a philosophic discussion uh, radio show and website. I think that's essential. I think that's the the power of the interviews comes from the examination of the philosophic premises that support public policies and uh, even the epistemological or metaphysical premises sometimes. So I, I, I would assume that you understand the power of philosophy and that's, that's where the power of the interviews come from. Um, it's a shame in my view that most people don't realize that the knowledge is hierarchical and um, they're not aware of the premises that support their public policy positions. And I try to bring that out in my interviews. And often there's contradictions in the um, underlining premises that the person I'm interviewing isn't even aware of. Uh, the other thing that my interviews bring out is they give you an insight into the person's character because when they're uh, confronted with these contradictions uh, or when they're pressed to reason about their views, you can tell whether they're per a person that's committed to reasoning or not. Uh, so far, I haven't answered your question yet, but I want to... Uh, <laughs> no, no, I appreciate your... I, I think this response is great. It's great. But uh, I plan to. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to evade. We try not to rush a philosopher. Uh, but uh, I thought that uh, first uh, I wanted to congratulate you, and in, in a sense, uh, you are committed to some of the fundamentals that I am, which the, one of my fundamentals is examining a person's uh, philosophic premises. And so I'm sure you do that as well. And you, you're well aware of what I just said and your, your uh, viewers and listeners are well aware of the same. That's probably why they're interested in philosophy, I would assume. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I, think, uh, assumption. I think seeing the similarities of our approaches is one of the reasons why someone posted your uh, videos on my website and we got a, a lot of very interested and positive, though somewhat morally horrified, not at you, but at the people you're interviewing, some response back, um, which I'm sure is something, the creepy crawlies a little bit, uh, where you see, um, because I mean, one of the things that you continually point out, just for those who haven't seen it, is that you say that um, uh, the initiation of the force, uh, the initiation of the use of force is immoral, which every reasonable person believes. 
And then you point out that the government is supposed to protect property, but the government, but the government has the right to violate property at will through taxation. And uh, every time you point out the violence of taxation, people say it's voluntary. And then every time you point out that if it's voluntary, there should be no consequences for noncompliance. They say, well, there are violent consequences for noncompliance. And you say that it's not voluntary. And they say, no, but it is voluntary. And that round and round seems to go. And I've had this for 20 years myself, trying to talk with this stuff about some people. Um, is, is that a fair summation? I don't want to sum up everything you do in one short uh, phrase, but that's a lot of the repetition. It's voluntary. Then there should be no consequences for noncompliance. There must be consequences for noncompliance. Then it's not voluntary. No, it is. That seemed to be a lot of what was going on in some of the ones that I saw. Does that, was that your experience as well, or have I just seen a sort of subset that's not uh, quite fair? Well, that, that does, what you described does occur. Um, I would... The way I would put it is there's several things that happen. Not, it doesn't always break down the same way. It's like when you go down a Socratic reasoning examination, you never know where it's going to lead. Sometimes it leads to somebody trying to distort the use of the word voluntary and, and turn it on its head. That's one 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 way it goes down. Uh, other times, what's happening is that even in the mind of the person that I'm interviewing, they they don't really understand the nature of government, and they don't understand that all laws are forceful. So uh, the real, the real issue in politics is is this an instance in which force should be used or not? That's the really the common denominator of all public policy questions, and most uh, even politicians that are involved in government every day, they're not explicitly aware that uh, what they're doing is they're forcing people each time they pass a law, and they then and they don't want to admit this because then this requires them to ask the next question, which is what I just asked. Is this a situation in which force should be used or not? Is it justified to use force in this instance? Yes, sorry, to just, to, just to throw in something that I think I saw happening in your interviews as well, which is that if it is a moral rule, philosophically speaking, it should be universal. Because if it's not universal, then it's more like an opinion or a prejudice or a cultural bigotry or uh, something local and personal, like I like ice cream and this kind of dance. But if it is a moral rule, then it really should be universal. And if it's universal, why would it only be confined to those who call themselves the government? Which I think is another question that gets people uh, kind of in, in, in all kinds of knots sometimes in the interviews that I've seen of yours. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, it is. It should be. It is and should be characterized as a moral rule. And ethics is underlining all of political theory and political views. So it, the ethical premises have supremacy over the political uh, positions and premises. And that's part of the hierarchical nature of knowledge that they're really not aware of. In, in, in effect, uh, politics is a sub-branch of ethics, which is generally understood by people with some amount of uh, uh, philosophic understanding, but um, most people aren't really aware of that. But leaving that aside, whether it is universal or not, the fact is that it's one of the premises that they hold. 
So that it, sorry, go they, ahead. Had effect, they had effect are contradicting themselves whether they think it's a universal or not, which I do think it is, but whether they agree with that or not is irrelevant because the point is that they have uh, committed in their personal ethical views to the non-initiation of force. They, they don't agree with that. And so then they think that's wrong. So the, all that's happening is that they don't really understand that in this other area of life, for instance, they're violating that premise. Oh, you want me to answer uh, some of your first question? Because uh, before I forget. Yes, uh, yeah, just, just before we get, we, we get oh, back okay, to that. We can, oh, well, no, no, okay. we'll Let's skip continue. around. <laughs> Whatever you want to talk about is fine with me. I, I just don't want to be accused of evasion, you know. I make a big deal about uh, requiring these people uh, not to evade and how bad evasion is. And I think it's uh, the major intellectual sin. So I, I want to be consistent and not do it myself. No, I think there's a difference between evasion and enthusiasm, and I think we're probably working in the latter category <laughs> rather than not okay. avoiding but pursuing new thoughts. Um, but I think because I think that most, uh, even people who believe in the validity of the state as a concept, which is debatable but not necessarily a debate we have to have now, but would say that the police would not be acting in a manner that would be wildly different from your average citizen. So if you're being attacked by someone, uh, you have the right of self-defense, and the right of self-defense is also universal, and also do you don't have to be the person being attacked. Like, anyone can save you from being attacked. And so having specialists call police who do that uh, falls within the universal moral category. I mean, forget the taxation, but but just that, you know, having uniform and being professional at helping people protect themselves falls within a – it's more of a specialist, falls within the universal uh, moral rule. Uh, and so I think those things would be more defensible – Whereas things like uh, foreign aid, the welfare state, uh, oh right, right, right. That's, uh, those things are very different, right? Yeah, I'm, those I'm are a not believer in uh, limited government and uh, delegating to the government your right of self-defense and limiting it to that. That's where the, the power f flows from uh, when it flows from the people. It flows into a right that's delegated from the individuals to the state for a particular purpose. And the purpose is to protect their individual rights and limit it to that. I, I think that optimizes the possibility of human beings in a social setting uh, achieving the greatest amount of happiness possible in principle for everybody in that society. So I, I, I believe in, in limited government. Uh, the, the problem that I'm examining in the interviews is uh, redistribution of wealth is one of the main ones and other incidentals that are, uh, you know, infringements on personal choices and et cetera. But the major, the, the major shift from the limited government perspective that was in the minds of the founding fathers and uh, starting with John Locke basically influenced them uh, is like the, the major difference is uh, that now people think that redistribution of wealth is perfectly okay. Sure, and, absolutely. And uh, every... I think even the 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 Roman theorists 
And clearly the, the uh, founding fathers of the United States and the Federalist Papers had already realized that a popular democracy is not a great system. And if, you, if you, everything's up for grabs, people can make coalitions to rip off other people in society. Well, that just uh, makes for a great food fight, which is what we have in the U.S., uh, where everybody's trying to get into everybody else's pockets. It's uh, horrible. Yeah, that's. I mean, this uh, I was did a, I did a video called "The Proper Function of Government" that uh, focuses on exactly that. Yeah, and I mean uh, the. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's terrifying how consistently this lesson is not learned. I mean, the ancient Greeks uh, understood this problem. They said the problem with democracy. Uh, at least some theorists said, is that the poor outnumber the rich. And so the poor will simply vote to take away the property of the rich and everyone becomes poor. And uh, we can certainly see that arc, I think, occurring in the U.S. economy uh, these days. Uh, now, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you on, on the size. I just had a four and a half hour debate in Philadelphia with Michael Badnerick, a former presidential candidate, on how much government is necessary. And uh, I took the uh, small to the vanishing point uh, side. So I don't want to get into that here. But I, I'm really quite fascinated about uh, a which little bit about... You, uh, which, did you, which side did you take just for curiosity's sake? Oh, sure. I took... Uh, uh, my, my particular focus is, is on trying to design uh, a philosophical and social system which does not require the institutional aggression of a government in any way, shape or form. So that's my pie in the sky, you know, build a castle in the clouds and try to live there approach. So I took the, the um, stateless society approach. And of course, he took uh, the minarchist society approach that will be that right. video will be posted in a couple of days if you're interested. But I'm quite interested mm -hmm. in, in how you I, have, I seem to have that 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 discussion is the comes up a lot in uh, in uh, libertarian circles. It certainly does, uh, and I think it's a very and, uh, good discussion. I, I, I think it's a perfectly fine uh, discussion to have. My only complaint is that I have it more often than I would like because my main <laughs> problem is uh, on the other side. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so and, I'd like uh, to uh, find a little bit about your, your background and what led you down to this path where you're sort of jamming the Socratic microphone into startled people's faces, which I think is a very interesting and noble thing to do. But if you could tell me a little bit about uh, how your thinking developed in this area and how you conceived and, and executed this uh, this plan of being the Socratic gadfly to the powers that be. Well, you know, I, I was... Uh, my background, if you uh, succinctly, is uh, I, I'm an attorney who... Uh, transitioned into uh, business and into TV production and TV interviewing. Uh, and then I've made some documentaries, which uh, if you want to check them out in chanhelfeld.com, you can. Can you just spell that for the people who end up uh, hearing this? Okay, well, that's uh, J-A-N-H-E-L-F-E-L-D dot com, chanhelfeld.com. Um, the thing that motivated me was I was really dissatisfied with the public policy discussions that I saw on television mm. in various ways. Uh, the I hate to just get like an assortment of opinions. 
right. and go nowhere. That really aggravates me. Right, right. And bores me, so I couldn't watch that. You know, I mean, I, okay, this is your opinion. Let's find out if it's true or not. It was, you know... And you cornered, uh, sorry to interrupt, but you cornered uh, in, a, in a very interesting interview at least one half of Hannity and Combs. I wish you'd got the other half as well, but I thought uh, Combs was a very interesting person to interview. He really was. It's really, it's like trying to grab fog made out of jello with tentacles uh, to try and get that guy to take a position. But of course, he wouldn't really be on TV if he had a firmer position. Well, I thought that was an amazing interview. What he was arguing, if I recall correctly was that individual citizens have the right to initiate force against other citizens. Yes, but then when confronted with that being universalizable, he then seemed to retreat. Everybody says this stuff, the moment you universalize it, they see there are problems with the position and then they'll try to, to fog and evade. But uh, it really was a very, and again, con, you know, massive props to you for, uh, for sticking it out with these people because it really is quite an intense. And what was the name of, sorry to interrupt again, what was the name of the... Uh, it was a reporter from the Boston Globe, the guy with the bow tie, who just seemed oh, yeah, entirely Tom Tom yeah, like epistemologically insane. Yeah, everything is relative and nothing is true and nothing is real and, and so on, right? I mean, just amazing. I mean, that's so postmodern. It's, uh, uh, it's like turning your brain into some sort of self-eating squid. But uh, I just thought that was a really... I don't, know, I don't know how you keep a straight face with these people. That, to me, is, is really a, a remarkable skill. But I guess you honed that as a, as a lawyer. Well, uh, actually, that was one of my uh, favorite interviews because uh, I thought that uh, we were able to examine exactly that, the postmodernist premises, uh, see uh, how absurd they are and self-contradictory. And he didn't get angry when we parted friends, which is my optimum <laughs> result. <laughs> I, my, the best thing you can do is expose the nonsense and not make an enemy, which is what I try to do. If yeah, possible. because then people focus on you being aggressive rather than the questions that are being that are really important. Right. Uh, I wanted to, that's an uh, interview that I would recommend uh, your viewers and listeners. I, I will uh, link both of these uh, when I post this. I will link the, both of these interviews. Uh, because it's uh, one of the most philosophic in nature. Yeah. Uh, another one where they argued um, relativism uh, and the idea that two contradictory propositions can both be true is that uh, David Korn from the nation. Hmm. He's, uh, he's, um, you can see that it's uh, titled, uh, David Korn, uh, on relativism. Okay. I will link that he's one as a, well. He's a reporter from uh, the nation. Right. Um, although I apologize, the audio isn't that great in, on that one. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So another one that's very philosophic is one that I did with George Will. Right, right. That's a, that was a real surprise to me because I assumed in the beginning that he was an advocate of uh, capitalism. And uh, I don't know, I would, uh, some kind of rational enlightenment, I was hoping. <laughs> but, right, right. Uh, he, he ended up on the side of uh, Hegel and Marx. Right. Wow. Right. That's a surprise place to end up. I think that's a, that's a, I think that my explanation for that is that sometimes people try to be consistent with a mistaken position and then they end up advocating positions that they really don't hold or they just find useful at the moment that they're having to 
the argument. Which again will tell you quite a bit about their character and commitment to integrity and truth over ego and defensiveness. Yeah, and it, it, sometimes it's not as horrible as it sounds. Sometimes they kind of think that this is some something like a game. It's not that they that they're doing it perversely. It's that mm. they just think that the and I would probably put him in that category. He kind of thought he was in some kind of like. Uh, Scrabble game or something, you know, where he could <laughs> just, you know, play a few a few cards and you know maybe he'd win or not. But uh, I think it's hard to. It's maybe, hard. There, there is a downside to that, I guess, because the seriousness of the implications of these premises is is really no game. Yeah. But uh, I think some people take philosoph they they take philosophic discussions in that context. They really don't see the import. Yeah, and that is really tragic. I mean, uh, right. you and I know the body count of Marxism runs into the hundreds of millions, and so it's not a position that should be taken frivolously. I, I agree. And if you asked him the next day whether he was a Marxist or not, or agree with Marxist premises, he would disagree. Yes, he would. Now, uh, can you tell me a little bit about how your interest in philosophy grew and what your influences were uh, in, in your study that led you towards, I guess, a libertarian or a minarchist position? Uh, well, um, I would say that early on, maybe even as early as about 10 or 11, I, I, in the arguments and discussions that I was having, um, about ordinary everyday positions, um, I noticed that uh, one sure way that you could demonstrate somebody was mistaken is if they were contradicting themselves. Sure. That was a that was a big awakening, and then I didn't really hold that too explicitly or too consciously. Uh, for until I got into college and I started to uh, study the Socratic dialogues, and then I saw Socrates uh, use that, and then more explicitly I started to become aware of, of the Socratic interviewing method. I would say that I always had an intellectual interest. And I had an interest in philosophy, and the philosophy studies that I did have left me unsatisfied and going nowhere. So I, I, I was, I took my philosophy seriously, and I uh, revised my premises, my transition, my background was uh, originally I was, uh, I guess you might call a liberal democrat because my father was a liberal, liberal democrat and then I started to get away from that when I started thinking about economics and politics and when I uh, read uh, Milton Friedman's book Free to Choose mm. that helped me a lot to organize my thinking in the field of economics and I started to read uh, other other thinkers um, I uh, I guess um, 
I started then to realize the importance of philosophy in general and tried to integrate my philosophy. Um, and I think it all the the major milestones I would say is just taking your philosophy seriously. Mm. Oh, one other thing I think I think there's three things that come to mind that I think are important. I uh, identifying the basic rules of logic at an early age, realizing that your philosophy is important, and being willing to uh, discuss the things with people that uh, differ with you, and exposing mm. yourself to 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 argument or Socratic interviewing, so that you can check to see if you're on sound ground or not. So let me congratulate you for your having the debate. And you say it was four hours. Yeah, four and a half hours. It was a great, uh, I really enjoyed myself. Well, I think that's a little bit too much for me. It's <laughs> like eating pie. Right, right. <laughs> Some well, it wasn't have a bigger every, appetite than others. We had a lot of, a lot of questions. Uh, we had a lot of questions from the audience, and that makes it uh, the time fly a lot faster. You know, when you've got a really intelligent and engaged audience, that made things a lot more enjoyable. Uh, well, that, it wasn't just the two talking heads. Yeah, I've, I've had that uh, the limit of, I think, Two hours is enough for me. <laughs> right, right. Well, I guess I know what you're saying. Including questions from the audience. But uh, and that's, a, that's an interesting thing. And um, did, what I see, because I created the National Debate Association, and I have a particular debate format, which I have proposed and used in debates. And... Um, Maybe I, I'll send it to you or something if you're interested. I'd love to read uh, it, sure. Uh, the, I think a lot about debates being effective uh, depends on the format. Hmm. Because some of the formats are really poor. The, the elements, I think, for a good debate, just the bare minimum, are that the participants have to be able to ask a series of questions, I mean like 10 questions in a row of each other hmm. so that they can lead each other to what they consider to be the right conclusion. Right. And that has to be uh, put together with a, a, a judge who requires responsive answers. <laughs> right, right. Yes, uh, there was uh, not 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 a lot of that going on at some points uh, in our debate. So, um, see then, because see then that the debate will uh, digress into arguing. It will become really. I'm not a big enthusiast of arguing. There are some people that feel comfortable arguing. Mm. I find it relatively sterile. I want some. I want you to just go right at me and ask me the questions that will show me that I'm mistaken, you know, and right. let me do the same thing with you. And then, you know, we'll butt heads and we'll see, you know, what happens. Cause of, uh, of course you and I are committed to a higher value than our personal ego or, or position on any subject, which is our commitment to the truth. And so, you know, if, if I have a mistake, I certainly want to find out about it. Now, um, so that, sorry, that, that way, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was saying, anyway, uh, I, I, uh, I think a, um, 
I think a debate should ideally be two, two people working to fill in each other's gaps in knowledge, and, and it should be a partnership in pursuit of the truth, not an ego-driven opposite argument, which, you know, sometimes it devolves into this one didn't. I mean, it was a very amicable and positive. I, I don't care, I, and I don't care, and I don't criticize people being committed to their position and being enthusiastic and, uh, you know, going at it competitively. There's nothing, in my view, wrong with any of those things. What's wrong is when the person put that above the truth. Yes, and, yes. Uh, so the way that I have is in my format, uh, whenever, you know, you ask the, uh, your opponent a question and you think he's, he, he hasn't answered, it's a leading, ultimately, a yes or no question, then you can ask the judge to rule. Uh, you can say, well, you know, I don't think he was responsive. Uh, and the judge says, yes, he was. Well, then tell me, well, did he answer yes or did he answer no? Right. But I don't know. Now, um, sorry, just I, I don't want to I don't want to take up take up all of your day, but I would just sort of like to ask if you don't mind um, uh, in, in what what is the nature of your pursuit of public figures, which, again, I, I find really fascinating and I, I will definitely try to get more exposure for your, your excellent videos. Is it uh, is it in the nature of a quest? Is it a hobby? Is it a job? Is it? I mean, w what is it uh, uh, that that you are pursuing this, uh, or how does it fit into the larger context of of your life? Well, it's my optimum career choice. I haven't been able to make a good living out of it, mm. uh, but um, it's uh, the best thing that I can do. I think. Um, I think it has a social value. I agree. And um, I'm in a position where I can contribute what I can. Uh, I think there's a commercial value, which is a diamond in the rough right there. Hmm. Uh, because I think the interviews are more dramatic and more exciting, more interesting and uh, certainly more intellectual value than, than what you see on television, uh, generally speaking. And so I think it's a good product commercially, so I'll uh, put it out there, and uh, maybe it'll get picked up, maybe it won't. In the meantime, I sell the uh, DVDs on my website, right. and uh, I have uh, got a lot of interest. One interesting thing uh, as far as um, commercial acceptance and interest here's an interesting factoid uh, about two million people have seen the uh, Reed interview uh, the majority leader Senate majority leader Reed uh, sorry your interview with with uh, with Reed that's the, fantastic the, uh, and the interesting thing is that uh, as happens on the on the uh, internet, um, about 1.8 million of those people have seen it on a website that actually lifted it from right. from a friend of mine's website right. that I had given permission to. So uh, I guess because of the the lax property rights <laughs> yeah. uh, context of the, of the internet, um, there was a, there's a side benefit.
which is that they're, they're, was you know exposed to a lot more people. So that that's that tells me that you know there's certainly an interest in these interviews, and uh, there's a market out there. I think that's right, though I I think, I I don't find it uh, at all this way, but I could certainly see how some people might be quite unnerved by the lack of rigor, precision, and consistency in the thinking of those who have enormous power, whether they're in the media or in the government. Because I I think most people look up at these, you know, well, they're our leaders, they they know what they're doing, they they have experts, they're, you know, they're up there because they're smarter and wiser and better. And I think this is, of course, a story as old as Socrates, that when you begin to question these people, you very quickly find out that they really don't have good grounds for their perspectives, for their beliefs. And yet they're not willing to admit it. So not only are they in error, but they're also emotionally immature. And yet they have such huge power in society. And I think people find that it, it disrupts their way of thinking like it's a hierarchical thing where the it's like a meritocracy where the smartest and most consistent and wisest should be the ones who have the most power. But I think that what you do is you show that the people who have the most power very often are neither smart nor wise nor mature nor consistent. I mean, smart, yes, but not wise or mature or consistent. And I think that's unsettling for some people, though. I think there it is a very, very important story to be told. Well, I think part of the reason for that is the total failure of the press. And the... Yeah, and the public schools. They're not uh, investigating the thinking and and giving people an opportunity to get an insight into the the person's uh, wisdom and character. Uh, But as far as uh, uh, people getting upset, uh, I think that's uh, probably a good thing because uh, we need to shake people up because certainly the the policies that the government is following on almost every front are, are... are pretty dire and horrendous and uh, part of it is the apathy of the citizens so unfortunately uh, in this case although I'm all for peaceful living and enjoying life uh, I think um, it's quite good that people get upset and uh, start to take you know their responsibility as citizens more seriously so we, we can certainly use a little bit of that at this stage I think that's entirely right, and I think it's a, a wonderful thing that you're doing in exposing some of the flaws and thinking of those who have power. Is there any, and I don't want to, again, I don't want to, I want to try and keep this to a civilized length. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add uh, just before we close up? Oh, not, I don't have a particular agenda. Uh, and I uh, just wanted to thank you for your interest. Uh, also, maybe uh, one of your uh, uh, participants recommended I uh, involve myself in your Sunday discussions. You're more than welcome anytime. That's uh, very nice of you. And um, I don't know, I think, uh, oh, as long as there's more people that are willing to do this, well, I think uh, my estimate is that we need at least 100 more people uh, doing this kind of thing. Uh, you know, things will be better and uh, each person does what they can, and in the meantime, I uh, hope you live a, g- a great life and you're very happy with everything else that's going on in your life. <laughs> I certainly wish the best for you as well, and thank you so much for the service that you're doing for the truth. I, I hugely appreciate it, and I'm sure that there are many, many other people who do as well. Thank you, then.